Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now on This Economy, Calum Pickering joins us with Berenberg, their senior economist. Calum, your observations of the duration that Christine Lagarde is looking out to into 2022, into 2023. Look, I think what you have here is a commitment to ease monetary policy beyond the horizon at which you would expect the Eurozone economy to return to its pre-pandemic level of GDP, which is probably going to happen, excluding Italy, mid-2022. So the ECB here, I think, is much more focused on inflation and inflation expectations than it is long-term rates, which are already at historic lows. If the ECB can signal to markets that it will create some inflation once the economy is at full employment, at least then the ECB can get a hold of real interest rates, which is the thing that it has lost control over. That's what matters for economic outcomes. So here, this is all about generating higher inflationary expectations, which is why, as you mentioned, the euro becomes a big deal for the ECB in trying to achieve those higher inflation expectations. And just looking at the euro, it did shoot uh, higher versus the dollar on the session, but has come off those uh, just a touch right now, 121.11 on the day. Right now, there is a question to John's point earlier, Callum. He was talking about building that bridge for fiscal policymakers to be able to borrow money and to spend to actually create that growth and in inflation because monetary policymakers cannot do it alone. Do you have a sense of how closely they're working and is the extension in quantitative easing and bond on purchase is by the ECB, a sign that perhaps those fiscal talks aren't going on track or aren't going to get going quickly enough? I think the economic conditions, prevailing economic conditions, justified the monetary policy actions. You have inflation expectations well below uh, uh, the 2% rate. You have huge output gaps across the eurozone. You have a historic shock, which would have been a historic deflation. And monetary policymakers simply care about that. When it comes to fiscal matters in Europe, what really matters is is First, the, the, the joint uh, budget, which will be negotiated at the, uh, the upcoming summit uh, today and tomorrow. And then you have the, the implicit decision by economies to say, OK, are we really going to stick to the Maastricht rules? Or are we going to suspend these rules for a while? So on the fiscal side, governments have all the permission that they need to go and borrow. It just is happenstance that economic conditions are prevailing that allows the ECB to supplement that fiscal policy with aggressive monetary policy uh, stimulus. Here's the line from the ECB. We'll continue to monitor exchange rate developments. That doesn't even land, does it, Callum? It doesn't get it done. Euro dollar right now, 121.07. I don't think this is a big deal right now. 121.78 is the high of the year. It's a move of about two-tenths of 1%. This was the setup, Callum. At the last meeting, they pre-committed to doing something. The something everyone agreed on would be a $500 billion euro, rather, increase to the pandemic emerging purchase program. They've done that. The consensus view was they'd extend it by six to nine months. They've done that, throw in the yep. towel trouble, that good stuff. They've done everything everybody expected and basically nothing more. In 37 minutes, there's a news conference. What's the objective of that news conference? Again, it's to try somehow to raise inflation expectations so that the ECB can reclaim its hold on real interest rates. But to your point about the euro, let, let, let's just step back a second and say, 
the rising euro reflects an, uh, an improvement in economic fundamentals in, in, in Europe. You have three risks which are fading yeah. over the next few months. Brexit, COVID, and now we have uh, a more European-friendly president in the U.S. On top of that, you have historic stimulus and likely a, a decent growth rate over the next couple of years as Europe recaptures the lost output from the pandemic. That's a fairly good situation. So money will flow into Europe over the next few few years. It already is, and that's what's pushing the euro higher. So on its own, the euro tells you that the economy is improving. However, from an ECB point of view, a stronger euro reduces import costs, reduces CPI, and hurts its medium-term monetary policy objectives. So it, it, it's a very difficult situation for the ECB because you could argue that the more stimulus the ECB gives the economy, the more fiscal policymakers try to stimulate the economy, the more the ECB and fiscal policymakers actually undermine their medium-term uh, 2% inflation target. Rock and a hard place. Callum, great to catch up with you, sir. Callum Pickering of Berenberg. Right now, we will digress to this horrific pandemic. Lawrence Gostin is one of the nation's true experts in public health law. He is at Georgetown. He is definitive. Professor Gostin, I think I need to put scope and scale in here and ask if we've lost it. We all know an individual story, an individual recovery. Mayor Giuliani, I believe, leaving the hospital yesterday. A tragic single death. And then we try to encompass... 3,000 people in one day. How do you keep perspective in this pandemic? Wow, what a great question. I mean, you know, it's hard. I mean, it's just, you know, you just step back and you think that this little microscopic organism uh, in a matter of weeks and months, and now we're into it a year, has just literally taken over our lives. Uh, So many um, celebrations without that uh, special person in the chair next to you. I think, you know, right now we're just being glazed over by the numbers, but you're so right. Every single death is, you know, somebody's dear loved one. And it's just massively um, uh, tragic to see it all. Um, But maybe we're going to be the beginning of the end with the light at the end of the tunnel with these vaccines. One of your acclaimed books, Power, Duty, Restraint. Let's go through the list and start with power. What is the power you request from the Biden administration? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Biden administration, first of all, is going to have to have the power of the purse. They're going to need Congress um, to get a lot of funding. They're going to need funding, not just a kind of recovery and just getting people back to work, business, small businesses back up and running, but they'll also need state and local health departments. And they'll also need it for, you know, uh, vaccine campaigns, um, because uh, a lot of Americans don't trust this this vaccine. And, and we've got to overcome that and get enough people. We've got to get the jabs in people's arms um, because having a good vaccine isn't enough. We've got to get about 70% of our population vaccinated, and that's going to be a hard task. All right, well, power, duty, and restraint. Let's go to duty. And the question is, what is the duty to vaccinate individuals uh, after you get the first responders and, and residents at nursing homes? Who next? How should this be best rolled out to get the virus under the control the quickest? Yeah, that seems to be the big question right now. Um, you know, in my view, um, the, the, what we need to do is prioritize uh, the most disadvantaged. And that also has a good public health impact because, 
you know, there are communities in this country, uh, Black Americans, Indian Americans, others, that have had four times as many uh, cases and deaths and hospitalizations as anyone else. Getting the vaccine to them, who, by the way, tend to distrust the vaccine a lot more than others, um, will be very, very important, not, a, not just for equity, but actually to kind of target the vaccine exactly um, where the illnesses and deaths are occurring. That's going to be really, really important. And we've got to ramp up production using the Defense Production Act. That's another duty to actually make sure that the supplies are not as scarce as they look like they're going to be. All right, if we're going to keep going uh, with this, let's go to restraint. And there is a question about employers and what they do in terms of mandating that their employees get vaccinated in order to come back to work. What's the law on that uh, side? How do they deal with that aspect as they try to create a work yet effective uh, uh, workplace? Yeah, you know, the EEOC hasn't uh, weighed in on this yet, but from what we know, um, they've said with the flu vaccine, uh, that employers can mandate it. Uh, many hospitals, nursing homes, workplaces, universities um, do. Uh, I don't see any reason why that they wouldn't be able to do it for the COVID-19 vaccine. I think it's ethical because anyone is entitled to, you know, take a risk with their own health. Um, but employers are there to make sure that their customers are safe, their employees are safe. And I think at least having a a COVID-19 vaccine program at the workplace, offering it to every single employee at the minimum is their, is their ethical responsibility uh, to keep everyone safe because that's their job. Professor, just before we let you go, an important question that many people have been asking me over the last few weeks. If we can vaccinate the most at risk in society, once we've achieved that, is there any reason to maintain the restrictions that have been introduced in countries like the United Kingdom, the United States, across Europe and elsewhere? You mean the, do you mean the restrictions in terms of who can get the vaccine or the restrictions? In no, terms I mean of the restrictions the around social distancing, Professor, those kind yeah, of things. Yeah, oh, that's, a, yeah that, that's a question I get asked all the time. You know, f for now, I think even when the vaccine uh, rolls out, we're going to continue to have to mask up and social distances. No, no question about it. There's still going to be a large reservoir of, of infection in, in, in the United States, the UK and other places. What we need to do is wait until we're really sure that we virtually eliminated um, uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 in the United States or, or Britain or wherever wow. it is. That is, we need herd immunity. Uh, that's probably not going to happen until, you know, maybe not till late summer or even into the fall. Wow. Professor Gostin, we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Sure. From Georgetown okay. University. It's Jane Foley, Parsonsist for Rabobank. We're thrilled that she could join us um, this morning. Jane, let's just review here your Euro call. I assume it's unchanged off of what we've heard in the last hour. If that is so, where will Euro be a year from now? Well, you know, looking at these inflation forecasts, I still think that euro could be um, really quite weak in, in a year to go. I mean, if we look at one of the reasons that really caused the euro dollar to pop higher this spring, it was that change in real interest rates. 
And if we look at the inflation in, in the Eurozone, well, I mean, Lagarde has just already been saying that we could have negative inflation through, you know, for a while just yet. And she's revised lower the, the inflation forecast for 2020 and 2022. And there really isn't an awful lot in there for, you know, to, to change that expectation that real interest rates are going to be more attractive mm-hmm. for the euro than for the dollar, you know, for the foreseeable right. think, through next year and, and maybe beyond. And if we look at the amount of people buying, say, tips or so in the U.S., there's belief that the Fed and their, their balance sheet can do more to bolster inflation. <clears throat> there just isn't that belief in Europe right now. Let's back up to first principles for our global Wall Street audience, but for those that are less sophisticated at this. What is reflation... And is there any evidence a government or society can reflate as a policy prescription? Well, this is what they would like to do. But, of course, we're all very familiar with Japan. And we've seen, you know, for a long time, a real inability to create an awful lot of inflation. And to be honest, if you look through the whole of the G10 for quite a long time now, for a few decades in some cases, it's been very difficult to create wage inflation. And it's certainly my view that if you can't create wage inflation, it's very difficult to create CPI inflation as well. Now, there are, of course, uh, um, going to be exceptions to that. There's going to be supply side issues for one reason or another. There's going to be certain sectors that might see inflation. But generally speaking, I think it's going to be difficult to create a normal yeah. upside inflation if you can't get the wages up. But the market is of the view that the Fed will be more successful at that than certainly right. in Europe right now. Are the partial differentials of price change between goods versus services are they very different or are they much the same? The way they bounce around creating inflation or disinflation, is there, in a pandemic, does service sector act differently maybe than before? I think that's probably right. I mean, I think the UK is probably a good example of this. You know, the UK's services sector has been re- really hit. So if we think about what services are, um, you know, are we thinking about things like education? Are we thinking about things like hospitality, for instance? Sectors which in some countries have been hit quite hard. And I think from that point of view, <clears> we can expect that some of the prices for some of these services will be quite weak. Whereas if we look at the, the sectors of the economies that generally have rebounded quite well, well, it tends to be manufacturing produce. And, and, and that perhaps, you know, we can begin to see perhaps a little bit more inflation. We could talk also about the, the, the theme of, of reversal of globalization. This relates back, of course, to the theme of China tensions. Uh, that could, uh, um, you know, see more wage inflation, more inflation perhaps in, in some manufactured goods as well. So there are different themes and different forces going on. But generally speaking, certainly in Europe, that's not going to be you know, fast enough to, to really create an awful lot of inflation in the next couple of years. What's the urgent? I love that phrase, except you say it so elegantly compared to my ugly American English, fast enough. What is Madame Lagarde's fast enough right now? What is the desperation to get to in 2021? Well, I mean, there's a headline on the Bloomberg Terminal right now. ECB sees inflation well below 2% target through to 2023. Three. So I think that's, you know, 2023. So, you know, this is this is the position that we are in. What can they do to create inflation? And the market doesn't... Okay, but they, come on. Like, I don't mean to interrupt, but Jane, in the time we've got left, the answer is simple. Do classic economics, which is clear the market. We got to go Schumpeter, and we got to clear out a lot of this. Uh, granted, a pandemic, I get that, but separate from the pandemic, 
we have to clear the market of zombie companies, don't we? Ah, but that, that's where you get very, very political. I mean, there's been zombie, zombie companies around, you know, since the global financial crisis, supported, of course, by this drip feed of cheap money. But now a Thank lot of them are supported by fiscal policies as well. So there's, there's, a, there's a two-pronged approach supporting them. But to get rid of them becomes extremely political. And, and again, it's perhaps more difficult to do that in Europe, where uh, governments tend to be a little bit more left-wing than in the U.S. Okay, well said. But just one final question here, and it's just so important. Okay, this morning we're talking 2023, which means in 18 months we're going to be talking 2024-25. I mean, I talked to Secretary Geithner about this a million years ago. It's just moving the can in all of its descriptions down the road. There's a point where you've got a de-zombie, right? Well, you would have thought so. But which government is going to be brave enough to do that? Uh, uh, you know, that's the thing. Yeah. Governments ultimately want to get voted in again. And, and, and that's, you know, that, that's where they become yeah. very unbrave when it comes to these sorts of issues. And again, we come back to this issue, you know, in Japan. How long has this been going on? How long can it sustain? And, and really, as long as there's a global savings class, as long as people want to buy this debt, it will sustain. <clears throat> Very valuable. Jane Foley, thank you so much. Coming off of Christine Lagarde, that's pretty good. We speak to Christine Lagarde and then Jane Foley of Rabobank joins us. Douglas Holtz-Eakin joins us. He is truly one of our most acute minds on fiscal politics, on not only our debt and deficit and his wonderful work at the Congressional uh, Budget Office over the years, but also his acuity of Capitol Hill. And our fiscal dynamics, Dr. Holtzikin joins us from the American Action Forum. Doug, wonderful to talk to you. Just well, well timed. Jason Furman writing up a better economy and the new Foreign Affairs magazine. How do we get to a better economy with this debt and this deficit? Well, the first step is obviously to take on the public health crisis and uh, eliminate the coronavirus as a threat to the population. That lifts a lot of the supply constraints that we've been facing for the past year and and then you can get down to focusing on the core things that matter. Can we uh, generate better productivity growth, which will raise real wages and the standard of living? That should be the focus uh, more than anything else. This is great. But, the you know, I looked at the combined tr- twin deficits, fiscal and trade, and we're out four standard deviations off like Reagan years. I mean, going back a million years or well. Do you assume, all the Stiglitz and the small g, that we just grow our way out of this, that there's a 10, 20, 30-year constructive path to grow our way out of these excess debts and deficits? No, I don't think there's any reasonable expectation you can do this with growth alone. Uh, we came into the pandemic recession with an unsustainable outlook. We're going to exit with an unsustainable out- outlook and jumping off the highest record uh, level of debt relative to GDP. So that's a that's a tremendous challenge. And, and on the political economy front, uh, Tom, he, here's the key fact. The minimum condition for a sovereign nation is that you be able to stabilize your debt relative to GDP. And the U.S. has not done that in the 21st century. And so to do that, the minimum condition is going to require good growth, more revenue, and control on spending. And those are three things that we have not put together in quite some time. Based on the plans currently in Washington, D.C., Doug, do you think that they will help growth accelerate, that basically it's spending worth spending right now? Right now, I don't think we should be concerned about the, the level of spending or the level of the deficit. I mean, we have a, a tremendous challenge in just keeping American families afloat. And I don't think 
the bills that they're talking about should be thought of as stimulus bills. They they are targeted primarily to giving uh, those who've been unemployed for a long time, about 11 million Americans, out of work since March, some financial stability over the next couple of months. That should get us past the public health crisis, and then we have a chance to get back to doing economics. Well, and this sort of goes to the heart of trying to avoid uh, another Great Depression, right? That basically, if you prevent the depths of the pain, that there won't be as much scarring longer term and that we can recover faster. What kind of stimulus, true stimulus, not just plugging the output gap, do you think would be appropriate next year? And coming from a position of having been the director of the Congressional Budget Office, having to try to balance the budget, how much do you think we ought to be spending right now? Well, I don't think we should worry about the amount of spending as much as what we're spending it on. So, you know, if you spend a trillion dollars and and you targeted it at at high-income individuals, you're not going to get them to go out and replace the service spending that they stopped doing because of the health problem. So it's where you target the money and more than how much it is. And next year and the year after, I think the the key is to combine uh, genuine investments in infrastructure, which people talk a lot about, done with an eye to the long term, not from, from the point of view of stimulus. So that's waiting out there in 2022, 2023, and combine that with upfront um, uh, you know, tax relief and um, targeted uh, income to, to the low end. I think that's all we need. Wait, wait, hold on one second. Income to the low end. Is this basically uh, what we've been hearing about in terms of giving supplemental income, universal income? Not a universal basic income, but I'm, I'm talking about you know stimulus-style temporary policies, and, and they can be extended UI uh, under some circumstances. They can be checks. Um, but, but I think that's really the only thing to worry about coming out of this particular recession. This recession is unlike any other recession. It's important to remember that we've seen income growth throughout the recession. We've seen the stock market rise. We've seen housing market rise. That's never happened before. We had a consumption-driven decline mm-hmm. focused on services that involve personal contact. Until you get that back, you don't get the economy operating again. Douglas Holtz, you can with us. Douglas, we've just got one more minute, and this is so important. I've got to get to it. Arjana Randall in Europe already has put out an inside view of the ECB meeting before Madame Lagarde has finished her press conference. And there's a raging debate about the duration of monetary experiments. In this case, it's the PEPP program as well. Are central bankers running out of ideas? Is the toolkit finally where they really don't know what to do in terms of policy or duration? I think in both the United States and in Europe, uh, the baton has to be passed to the fiscal authorities. The monetary authorities have done their job. Uh, We have seen uh, financial markets stabilized in a dramatic fashion. Trading Mm -hmm. has been, uh, you know, uh, quite good over the, the course of the year. Now you need some real economic growth coming from the fiscal side. We got to leave it there. Douglas Holtzikin, way too short. We got to get you back for a much longer conversation. The former head of the CBO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> 